Hello, my name is Douglas Block. I'm an author and mental health educator. Welcome to your Depression Recovery Podcast, where each week we talk about practical tools and coping strategies for healing from depression and anxiety. This week's podcast was adapted from one of my YouTube videos. I hope you enjoy it. This week is episode six of my audiobook, When Going Through Hell Don't Stop. And this week you'll be hearing part two of chapter three, Treading Fire, in which I further describe what I called my survival plan for living in hell. Attending day treatment was like going to a regular job. Except here, the task was to get well. My co-workers suffered from a wide range of mental disorders. Depression, anxiety, manic depression, schizophrenia, multiple personality disorder, and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. The patients at day treatment did not fit the stereotype of crazy people that I had learned. These were brave souls who struggled against powerful and deadly brain disorders. They were my comrades in healing, and together we formed a brotherhood of pain. Many of my fellow group members lived on SSI, Supplemental Security Income, or SSD, Social Security Disability, while Medicare paid for their therapy. I frequently wondered whether wealthy depressives went for help. My friends commuted to the clinic on the bus, often travelling many hours over long distances. Some were homeless and were forced to live in whatever transition shelters would accept them. I, who owned my own home, felt like Bill Gates in comparison. Suddenly I realised that these nameless souls, stigmatised by their poverty and mental illness, were our true heroes, for they possessed what Woody Allen, in the opening lines of the film Manhattan, rightly called the most important human attribute. Courage. Day treatment was a true life raft that kept me afloat during the most critical period of my illness. The program's only limitation was that it did not provide 24-hour care. Groups ended at 3.30pm on Monday through Thursday, and at 2.30pm on Friday. Since Joan and my friends were all working, I needed to find additional support for the rest of the afternoon. The solution came in the form of Terry, a home health aide whom I had located through an agency in the Yellow Pages. Terry was a guardian angel who stayed with me on weekday afternoons and guided me through various mundane tasks that kept me focused, i.e. cleaning the house, balancing my checkbook, mailing books to my readers, buying vegetable starters for the garden, taking a leisurely hike in Forest Park, and so on. Weekends were also a challenge because they lacked the structure that day treatment provided. I organised my time as best I could, asking Joan and my friends to take shifts as my caretaker. The task was way too big for any one person. Walks in nature alternated with car drives along the Columbia River Highway, games of Scrabble, piecing together jigsaw puzzles, and watching movies. 
when I could focus. Since it is extremely demanding to be around someone who is emotionally and physically agitated, I will always be grateful for those people who displayed saint-like patience and understanding in the midst of my ordeal. Support is critical in helping people to cope with all kinds of extreme circumstances. Survivor researcher Julius Siegel emphasizes that communication among prisoners of war provides a lifeline for their survival. And for those who are prisoners of their inner wars, support is equally crucial. In chronicling his own depressive episode, novelist Andrew Solomon wrote, Recovery depends enormously on support. The depressives I've met who have done the best were cushioned with love. Nothing taught me more about the love of my father and my friends than my own depression. Physical support. The second aspect of my daily survival plan consisted of finding ways to nurture my physical body. One, exercise. Research has shown that regular exercise can improve mood in cases of mild to moderate depression. In the midst of my clinical depression, exercise provided a decided, if only temporary, reprieve from my emotional torment. For years, my favorite physical activity had been swimming. Now it became a cornerstone of my survival strategy. My 9 a.m. swim helped calm my morning anxiety and prepared me for day treatment. The evening swim elevated my mood and alleviated whatever residual anxiety was still present. When the attacks were particularly bad, I would swim 30 to 40 laps until I collapsed in exhaustion. On weekends, I exercised by taking hikes in the Columbia Gorge, around Mount Hood, or in Portland's beautiful Forest Park. Although walking in the woods did not eliminate the depression or anxiety, it provided a safe structure in which I could physically burn off a portion of my distress. 2. Eating and sleeping. To stabilize my emotions, I ate a diet high in complex carbohydrates and protein. Fish, chicken, vegetables, whole grains, pasta, whole wheat, breads, potatoes, yogurt, etc. And avoided foods such as simple sugars that produce mood swings. Fortunately, loss of appetite was not one of my symptoms, and so I ate regularly. Although my prior depressive episodes had been marked by severe insomnia, few things are as debilitating as waking up at 3am and not being able to get back to sleep. This time, I was able to rest, thanks to small doses of the antidepressant Elevil, as well as the anti-anxiety drugs Clonopin and Ativan. This allowed me to keep a regular sleep schedule, which helped my body get into a rhythm. On those nights where I experienced early morning awakenings, a classic symptom of depression, 
I reminded myself that no one ever died of insomnia. If I couldn't fall asleep within 20 minutes, I would get up and read, if I could focus, walk around the block, watch some television, or do some simple housework. Within an hour, I was usually back to sleep. 3. Medication While antidepressants did little to alleviate my depression, I learned to use the drug clonopin to manage my anxiety. Clonopin is an anti-anxiety medication, which is a member of the benzodiazepine family that includes Xanax, Ativan, Valium, Librium, etc. Despite my fears of getting hooked on the drug, I soon realized that the benefits of taking clonopin, i.e. containing my anxiety, outweighed the risks. Depression combined with anxiety is more likely to result in suicide. Thus, when my anxiety began to escalate, I ingested half a milligram of clonopin and was guaranteed two or three hours of temporary relief. Although sometimes I felt a bit groggy, being sedated was preferable to jumping off a bridge. Mental, emotional support. Although I could not always control the painful symptoms of depression and anxiety, I could influence the way I thought and felt about those symptoms. 1. Monitoring self-talk. Monitoring one's self-talk is an integral strategy of cognitive behavioural therapy, a talk therapy widely used in treating depression. The catch-22, of course, was that the part of me that was supposed to do the monitoring, my thinking self, was itself impaired. I felt like a legless man who was told that the only way to save his life is to get up and walk. Fortunately, before the onset of my illness, I had spent eight years writing books and articles on the subject of positive self-talk. With Pat's help, I used a process from my book, Words That Heal, to create specific affirmations that would counter the all-too-frequent thoughts of gloom and doom that dominated my brain. For example, the statement, my depression will never get better was replaced by the affirmation, nothing stays the same forever, or this too will pass. Since the depressed brain tends to see life through dark colored glasses, monitoring my inner dialogue and switching from negative to positive self-talk was a constant and unending challenge. Two, keeping a mood journal. One of the survival strategies I used to stay alive in my hell was to keep track of my anxiety and depression on a day-to-day basis. To this end, I created a daily mood journal using a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 representing the highest degree of anxiety and depression, and 1 representing the absence of symptoms. Somehow. The simple act of observing and recording moods gave me a sense of control over them. I also used the mood journal to track my reactions to pharmaceutical drugs 
and to record daily thoughts and feelings. This ongoing log served as an important progress report, both for myself and for my healthcare providers. It also provided an operational definition of recovery. My psychiatrist defined my getting well as seeing both the depression and anxiety ratings decrease to a score of two or below for six consecutive weeks. I liked the idea of working towards that goal, even though it seemed light years away. Three, venting when I need to. Part of surviving meant being able to express my feelings, especially anger and grief about my plight. With Pat's encouragement, I vented my rage and fury through yelling, pounding a pillow, or painting my feelings in art therapy. Later, I learned that the body's immune system is actually strengthened by expressing feelings. That both positive, joyful, and so-called negative, sad, angry, feelings are equally therapeutic. There is something about catharsis, giving full expression to one's deepest feelings of anguish, that is good for us. Perhaps that is why the Book of Psalms contains as many lamentations as songs of praise. 4. Being compassionate with myself As part of my emotional self-care, it was important to release the toxic feelings of blame, guilt, or shame that are so often felt by a person who is depressed. As Pat reassured me, depression is an illness, like diabetes or heart disease. It is not caused by a personal weakness or a defect in character. It is not your fault that you have this disorder. Once again, I turned to the affirmation process. Whenever I started to judge myself for being depressed, I would repeat, It is not my fault that I am unwell. I am actually a normal person dealing with an abnormal condition. I am taking good care of myself and will continue to do so until I get well. 5. Focusing on the little things One day, I asked Pat, If all I am doing is trying to survive from day to day, how do I find any quality in my life? The quality is in the little things, she replied. How true. Shortly after Pat's comment, Portland was unexpectedly blessed with a sunny day. As I beheld with awe and wonder the magnificent pinks and red hues of the sunset, I recalled the words of poet Robert Browning. God's in his heaven. All's right with the world. The experience was made all the more poignant by its transitory nature. I knew, in a matter of hours, my depression would return, and I would be cast back into outer darkness. In another instance, a friend and I spent an evening listening to the celestial chants of the Teze monks, founders 
of an international spiritual community located in the south of France. I was particularly moved by one refrain. Within our darkest night, you kindle the fire that never dies away, that never dies away. As my voice merged with the voices of the audience, I was momentarily catapulted into ecstasy, like a trapeze artist balanced on the high wire. I stood suspended above the abyss of my suicidal thoughts, safe from harm. Having moments like this was akin to making deposits into an emotional bank account. When I sank back into my depression, I would draw upon my stored memories and affirm that life could still be beautiful, if only for an instant. Six. Adapting to the cyclical nature of the illness. Another adjustment I had to make was understanding the up and down nature of my depressive illness. There were two levels at which this occurred. First, I observed that days of intense anxiety would alternate with those of immobilizing depression. Second, like the person with a chronic physical disease such as cancer, I came to learn that periods of progress and recovery were often followed by setbacks. Such relapses were particularly dangerous, for my accompanying disillusionment led to despair and suicidal thinking. To counteract these thoughts, I trained myself to say, one day the respites will last. One day they will turn into a genuine recovery. I also reminded myself of Dougal Robertson's famous counsel from his manual describing how he and his family survived 38 days lost at sea. Robinson wrote, Rescue will come as a welcome interruption of the survival voyage. This has been Douglas Block. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something from it. If you'd like to ask me any questions about what you have heard, feel free to email me at douglasblock at gmail.com. That's my first and last name, all lowercase, at gmail.com, without any dots or underscores. If you would like to learn more about my work with depression, you can visit my website, www.healingfromdepression.com, or go to my YouTube channel. Just open up YouTube and type in the words Douglas Block Depression, and my depression recovery channel should come right up. Finally, I would like to remind you that depression and anxiety are treatable conditions. It may take time to find the right therapy or combination of therapies, but if you persevere, you can achieve the healing that you seek. And until our next podcast, I wish you the best in your mental health recovery. Thank you for listening. <music>